My mum is 77. I always felt when we were building Best Fiends that if we couldn't design a game that she could play, then we were doing something wrong. What an amazing market and what a brilliant place to make sure that you've designed great products with UI that's accessible and straightforward because, you know, no doubt if you're having to explain it to people, you're losing. Welcome to the Canopy IQ podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Andrew Stalbo. Andrew's many accomplishments include co-founding Seriously, a mobile game studio which released the hugely popular casual mobile game, Best Fiends. He was also EVP of Strategic Partnerships at Rovio Entertainment, which is a company behind global sensation Angry Birds and its companion game Angry Birds Rio. Andrew spearheaded mobile game development during his time at 20th Century Fox, where he was senior vice president of mobile. And he recently co-founded Destination Football. He's a busy guy. Andrew, great to have you. Thanks for having me. So you've been at the cusp of mobile technology going all the way back to your time at Vodafone in the UK. And I remember when rolling out 3G was a game changer. We got the Vodafone handsets when they came in. <laughs> I'm calling it a handset. It was a mobile phone. No, I said handset. But anyway, the point is, I remember seeing 3G emblazoned on the artwork. It was everywhere and it was revolutionary. It's one of those things where I think that people like you and me, even though we were on opposite sides of the table, I was working for the mobile carrier you were working for content company Fox at the time. I think we both 100% believed that a phone was going to be a great content consumption device as well as a communication device. Um, actually, before I before I was at Vodafone, I was at Hutchison, uh, which was creating a mobile uh, 3G company called Three that rolled out across uh, various countries uh, in Europe. And I had conviction in mobile as a platform for content, you know, going right back to 2001. I just knew I would never leave my house uh, without my phone. And uh, I was already addicted to kind of getting all the football scores and sending little video clips between my friends. And I thought it was going to be a really big platform from, I guess, pretty early days. Uh, and it was fun to work with you back then, Adam. That's right. I left out that Andrew was my boss at the time, and um, he was a major influence in, in my career development. Probably one of the kindest people you'll ever meet, whether it's uh, behind the camera, quote unquote, or, or in front of it. When we were at Fox, it was uh, definitely an adventure. And I just remember, you know, I look back at those times very fondly. You were always what is called now a compassionate leader, which is a rare attribute especially in the entertainment industry, which is really known for folks who are, let's just say cutthroat, is there maybe the amicable term? Well, I think they always said, uh, you know, when we, when we started working together at Fox, I remember coming over to Los Angeles from London, sitting down with someone pretty senior at the company. And he said to me, he said, look, the great thing about Fox is they stab you in the front and not in the back. And so I thought that, I thought that pretty, pretty much summed it up. At least people were upfront about it. But you know, I had a I had a brilliant time working with you. You were very hardworking. Um, you were very thoughtful, incredibly creative, and uh, we had a we had a brilliant time. Uh, I I always describe it as, you know, 20th Century Fox 
when I started kind of gave me one of the worst offices in the, on the studio lot, you know, just about scraped a car park space. And every time we did a, we did a deal, they'd give you a pat on the back and say, wow, this is found money on mobile. And I think, you know, working as a, as a, as a really talented group, we, we managed to do a lot of deals and build some really great products and experiences for people and ended up building a really big business. And, um, I think I think by the end we 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 done a lot of deals for the company and were a you know a reasonably material part of the company's revenue stream so it was it was a really fun ride being there at the time when uh iPhone was launching and people were going on their phones a lot more yeah and the technical challenges i remember at, at i look back on that and they felt insurmountable some days i remember they 320 240 qvga mobile screen that would display at like 15 frames a second. And I remember showing the phone to people and saying, check this out. You can watch, you know, TV on your phone. And they would look at me like, a, you know, like I was uh, out of my mind. I said, no one will ever watch television on a phone. Yeah. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here we are all these years later. And, you know, the platform has developed incrementally. And the technology behind it obviously is... Um, it's absolutely a game changer. Every time I turn around, there's there's a, a new device on the market. Obviously, iPhone dominates, but the software is so powerful and so flexible, and really democratizing on many levels. Uh, that's what I you know that's what I love about it. And what we do here at Canopy is really a, such a significant amount of our business is on mobile device tracking and serving content to the right people at the right time and so forth. One of the things that I think is exciting about what's happening now is brand building as a whole. The tools to build brands have increased, not just in reach, but in their power. And it's not like you have to write code to build a brand. Obviously, you need creativity, you need some capital and so forth. But the landscape as a whole has shifted. And I always thought that was an interesting attribute, really, and a characteristic of how you went about brand building not just at Fox, but when you left, because you have done something which a lot of people don't do. And that is you came from the established brand world. You learned how to harness a brand. You learned how to extend its reach through mobile devices and so forth. And you made it accessible in kind of rewiring certain brands to fit the hardware, if you will, that existed at the time. And today, obviously, we don't really have that issue because everything's connected. It's IoT. You know, you're going to watch your show on a phone and then continue it on the iPad and then go look at your uh, massive monitor at home, which, you know, which I love. But I wanted to talk about what you love the most about building brands, because really it is what you're known for. What is it like to build a brand from the ground up? And maybe you can speak about Best Fiends, for example, because you took something that was an unknown quantity and you developed it into a really beloved brand that is popular now throughout the world. Well, I'd say I'd say we we were lucky, I think, growing up where um, the world changed and we got to be executives in a world where there was a big platform shift. And that doesn't always happen. So I remember when when you back in the day when you and I were first working together in 2006, I remember there was a mobile advertising company and they called themselves fourth screen because mobile was the fourth screen after television cinema your computer then mobile now it's the 
first screen. And I think that is an amazing opportunity for any great brand builders out there because unlike 15, 20 years ago, if you were building a brand, in most uh, occasions, if you were particularly building something in entertainment or really any industry, you, you probably would end up being a B2B, a B2B company. So you would create content and then it would get distributed to the audience through someone else's platform. And I always remember working with The Simpsons and um, a lady there that ran the licensing business for The Simpsons was so frustrated because they create this amazing show and then it'd be distributed on Fox Television Channel or Sky in the UK. And they had this massive audience, but they were never connected. They never really got to see exactly how the consumer felt about the experiences they were building. Fast forward to today, we're so lucky as product builders, brand builders, because we're directly connected. We get to see the data. We get to see how many people are using it, what they like, what they don't like. So first of all, I would say from a brand perspective, there's never been a better time to go and build something, get connected to the audience and get the feedback iterate and evolve. The other thing I would say is any book, you know, the one lesson I learned again, back in my Fox days uh, and at Angry Birds days was really if you're going to build something special, you have to have a lot of authenticity. And it comes from the heart. People see through something that where they can see that the builder hasn't really believed in it. And I think that if you look up your favorite TV shows or your favorite films or your favorite games or your favorite products over the years, and you search the making of the iPhone or the making of Indiana Jones and uh, the Temple of Doom or making of the Godfather or whatever your favorite thing is, you will just see videos about how people built something and how they put their heart and soul into it. So when we started building our app, Best Fiends, uh, the first thing we cared about really was the kind of credibility and authenticity of building out a world and a story and characters that came from the heart. And to that, I have to give 100% credit to my partner, Petri, on the project, because we really developed the world of Best Fiends off the back of a story that he used to tell his kids uh, when he, he didn't like reading books to his kids when he put them to bed at night, but instead... He used to tell a story about these kind of little garden creatures in his garden that were fighting off these slugs that were taking over the garden. And we, we took that and these kind of very big Spanish slugs are, in, are, are kind of prolific in Finland. You see them everywhere. And we took this story and we kind of had the good guys, the bad guys, and built it up into something really special and authentic. And I think when you have that as a foundation for your brand, anything's possible because you really believe in the story and you really want to kind of propagate it and get it out there as much as possible. So yeah, those are the two things connected to the audience is amazing. And then the authentic authenticity of your approach is, is really, really important too. Was it challenging to have your office in Los Angeles? I know you're flying to Helsinki quite often, but you've got the Finnish team working on a lot of the creative aspects. You've got the LA team doing a lot of the marketing and you've got developers who I assume are spread around the world. How do you bring those time zones together and those cultures together to create something as cohesive as what you were able to pull off? That's a good question. Um, I'd say a couple of things. I say, um, first of all, a few of us on the core team at the beginning had worked together before and we've worked together across uh, different time zones. So, uh, that always makes things easier, particularly when you're starting a new company that you've worked with, worked with some of the people before. Um, I'd say second of all, 
Um, I think we looked at it as an advantage. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, you get handed a difficult situation and you may as well look at it as an opportunity. So the opportunity was we had more hours in the day to work uh, as a as a kind of collective team. Uh, we had more connections both here in, in Los Angeles for uh, connections in media and creativity in San Francisco with Apple and Google. So that was, I felt that was a good advantage. Um, and then we knew that if we were going to build a big business, we needed to kind of make it work as uh, in the US. It needed to be something, a product that would connect with people over here. So being on the ground here was 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 a big advantage, I thought. Um, but most of all, we all had a kind of complete passion to build this thing up. We felt like, and we really were, challengers. You know, we were reasonably late to launch a mobile game compared to a lot of other kind of companies in the space like Candy Crush, for example, or Angry Birds. Um, we, I wasn't amazing at raising capital, so we didn't have that much money to spend on marketing. And so we had... Um, you know, a small, a smaller marketing budget than most of our competitors. Uh, but we felt like, you know, it was David versus Goliath. And I think when you have that kind of mentality of feeling like a challenger, then actually anything, anything's possible. I'm going to reference a quote from your interview with VentureBeat. And that took place five years ago. But I thought this is a relevant quote to bring up because like so many of the things that you've shared with me over the years, very prescient. I always felt like you were several steps ahead of the zeitgeist, if you will. And the quote is, right now, the mobile market is the most vibrant ecosystem in the world, but it's also the most competitive media platform in the world. Just absolutely spot on. And you made that statement well before AI was commercially viable. And I think you saw the writing on the wall and you see it now, which is everybody's a creator. Everybody's got these 1080p cameras on their in, their, in their pockets, and they can whip them out. And the opportunity to become a viral sensation is, is certainly at the forefront of popular culture. How many people pull that off is a different story. On the subject of authenticity, where is that sort of delta between wanting to bring a viable product to market? And as you just mentioned, the staggering amount of competition in that ecosystem. Because if I recall, and this is probably an old stat, but something like 90% of all the apps on the app store are what they call zombie apps. Like nobody ever downloads them, nobody uses them. They just sort of sit there in perpetuity. So if you were to speak to someone who's an entrepreneur and wants to break through, what kind of advice would you give them based on the history you've got, you know, bringing successful products to market? Well, I would say firstly, um, you have to build, uh, you have to build something you love. I, I've never seen anybody be successful building a product that they don't love themselves and don't love sharing with their friends and family. So I think that's a really important thing. Second of all, I'd say while the competition is intense, um, Unlike 20, 30 years ago, there's no gatekeepers anymore. And you can go straight to the audience. You can find your audience. You don't have to find a publishing partner. You don't need to do a deal with a B2B distributor. If you are in the creative industries now, uh, you, can go, you, you can find your audience. You just have to be thoughtful uh, and 
try and do it a little bit differently from the way some other people are doing it right now. Uh, I always look at kind of YouTube talent or TikTok talent or Instagram talent, and I think, you know, 30 years ago, they'd have been interviewing uh, for auditions to be on the Mickey Mouse Club, right? And now they don't have to, thank goodness, they don't have to do that anymore. Their talent can shine and they can find a way to kind of capture and captivate people's attention so i think it i think it's a brilliant time um the one piece you know a lot of people find it hard to say all right i'm a great content producer but i'm not a great marketeer they don't necessarily have like left and right side of the brains and they want to and and they're kind of nervous about that but I, i i would the advice i would give on that front is have a look at what your competitors are doing speak to the chief marketing officers of the companies uh who are doing a good job in the space and ask them what isn't working for them and look at those platforms and take them very seriously as, as, uh, as marketing opportunities. You know, when we, when we were seriously, I think I already said to you, you know, our marketing budgets were really, really tiny compared to our competition. And we asked our, our competition, you know, what was working and everyone said, you know, Facebook was a great acquisition channel and Google was a great acquisition channel, uh, which they are. And uh, we said, well, what isn't working? And they said, well, we couldn't make YouTube work. And we've never managed to make a deal with an influencer work. And so I thought, okay, that sounds like a good challenge. You know, there's a lot of people watching watching YouTube and influencers are, well, they are highly influential, uh, hence the name. Uh, so we, we had a go at making that work and thought that would be a great way to stand out and differentiate. I want to get your perspective on a subject that is going to have a truly massive economic and social upside for the mobile game ecosystem as a whole. And that is our rapidly aging society. 10,000 people are going to turn 65 every day of the week for the next 20 years. It's a staggering stat. And most seniors now are using smartphones. There used to be this idea that if you were an older person, you use the jitterbug, you know, which was a feature phone with the giant buttons. That's just not real anymore. You know, people are pretty savvy about technology and that's becoming uh, an increasingly important factor in their lives. We see a lot of adoption on our side of the industry. People who normally were in isolation look at these phones as a lifeline and that really started exploding during COVID. So according to the AARP, and I really love this stat, gamers age 50 plus now number 52 million strong. That's a huge audience. So this love of games and and gaming and adoption, it's absolutely transcending age groups. It's really a universal phenomenon. You know, I I always think, and and I don't know if my mum will be listening, and my mum is is 77. I always felt with when we were building Best Fiends that if we couldn't design a game that she couldn't play, then we were doing something wrong. I thought it was very, very important that, that the game was simple enough, accessible enough, well-designed with a, with, a, with a brilliant UI that she could play it really, really well. You know, she could play it easily without having to ask me what to do. So I always remember I, I took the game to her when it was early, showed it her, and she, you know, she turned it on and she asked me a question. I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you anything. You've got to figure it out for yourself. 
And, and of course, and then she started playing and she loved it. And, you know, a lot of us have, you know, lucky enough to have mums that love playing words with friends or, or, or other games like that. And I would say, what an amazing market. Uh, and what a brilliant place to make sure that you've designed great product with, um, with UI that's accessible and straightforward because, you know, no doubt if, if, if you're having to explain it to, if you're having to explain it to people, you're losing. And I think it's really, really important to, uh, you know, build something cool that's accessible for everybody. So, uh, I think it's a great opportunity for people. Um, you, uh, have an established audience that has a little bit of money that uh, is very engaged that uh, uh, that is happy to share good experiences. So uh, no, I think it's a I think it's a great market, a great opportunity. Yeah, I feel the same way, and I'm speaking, you know, as somebody who has uh, a mother who's who's well in her 80s now and relies on her phone, and she will play casual puzzle games. My son, who's a teenager, is on his Xbox, and I know that, you know, he will give her, uh, he will give her a tour of some of the games he's playing, which are typically FPS, you know, first-person shooters, and she's just horrified. But then she'll look at me and say, "There's not enough games for people in my age group," and so I think that's going to become a growing uh, source of revenue for the people who get in there and do it right. I know it's. It's competitive, as we mentioned before, but the opportunities are going to increase. And I think it's, as you also mentioned, coming from an authentic place and really developing a product application or branded characters that resonate with this audience because they number in the tens of millions. So they should absolutely not be overlooked. Switching gears for a second, you're mentoring this new generation of innovators at UCLA. So First of all, do we need to address you as Professor Stalbo now? Is that- <laughs> no, definitely not. Andrew, definitely yeah. not. What's that like? What, what, do you, what do you like most about uh, working with this younger generation of thinkers and doers who are going to hopefully change the world for the better, right? I see. Uh, I, I love working with uh, the next generation. I think that there's great energy, great ideas. There's some incredible people at, at, at the school. Um, I love the, I love, I love the naivety and, uh, the fact that people are ambitious and believe that anything's possible. They always ask, you know, because I obviously had, um, have some experience building up a company and taking it from an idea to something that ended up, you know, being reasonably big. They, um, they do think that I know what I'm talking about. So they often ask me a question like, what do you think, Mr. Stalbo? Uh, you know, should we do this? What do you think about this? And I always just turn the question back to them and really say, well, what do you think? And generally speaking, they know the answers. And, um, uh, yeah, it's very enlightening working working with younger people. It's, it's a really nice experience. What would you say is their biggest concern about the economic landscape in terms of just the advent of new technology like AI, which obviously is going to give them opportunities to flourish. But I know there's a lot of fear out there as well. And I hear it from some of our younger team members. And that is, is my job going to be obsolete in a few years? I would say most people I know are not too afraid of AI. And I don't think anyone, anyone should be. Um, 
because I think that ultimately it's going to be additive and it's going to enable people to kind of do the things they do well better. And I'm a, I have a positive, optimistic outlook that things will work out uh, pretty well. Um, I would say that what I see most younger people being nervous about is the scale of competition that they're facing. And, you know, I don't know if you've, you, you know, you've, you've obviously got um, reasonably young, young kids, um, but m- people that have kids that have phones will see the amount of engagement that comes up on TikTok or other social media sites. And that really is your competition now with what you're building. You have to build something that's more entertaining, um, that has better retention uh, than the things that people are doing now and things that people are doing now, we're quite addicted to. So I think people get nervous about how do you compete with that and how do you compete in a super competitive landscape? I think the other thing is as well is I think that, you know, it's generally sold to people that it's very, very good to be an entrepreneur from a young age. You know, we've got people like Mark Zuckerberg or, uh, you know, uh, legendarily founded their company in their kind of mid-20s. So I think people do feel under pressure if they're, if they're going to have a go at something entrepreneurial to do it young. But I, I, would, I would counter that and say, actually, I think your job when you're young is to get good experience. Go and find good bosses that you can kind of look up to and learn from. Go and work at companies that are doing something super interesting. And I, you know, I certainly wouldn't have been ready to, to, to have a go at our company until... I, I'd had experience under my belt working with Angry Birds and working with Fox and Vodafone. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't have had the capabilities to do it until I was in my late 30s, early 40s. And that, that was me. Uh, but, I, but I do think getting some good experience is also a great way to kind of ultimately start an entrepreneurial career, even if it's a bit later than you might initially think. Excellent advice. Go work for the man. Pay your dues. Pay your dues. Yeah, exactly. Pay <laughs> exactly. Pay your dues. I remember my very early days in Hollywood, and and I dared come up with an idea at a at a boardroom. And I remember my boss at the time, won't mention by name, but lovely guy. We got to be very close. He said, "Your job is to keep your eyes open and your mouth shut." And I remember thinking, "Well, that's uh, that's certainly on point." But he, you know, he ended up becoming a a mentor who shared a lot of his insights with me. And, uh, you know, here I am today and I've, I've been the beneficiary of people who had to fight hard for their foothold and to keep that foothold and expand on it. But I think if you can remain compassionate and you can do work that's, you know, stands the test of time and you leave people with a good taste in their mouth, that to me is, um, it's sort of the apex of, of a career trajectory. So Andrew, I wanna, I wanna thank you for spending time with me today. And uh, I'm excited to share your story with the audience. It's a, it's a unique story. You've worn many, many hats in your lifetime. And I feel like you're just getting warmed up. Thank you, thank you so much. It's brilliant to spend the time. Thank you for tuning in to the Canopy IQ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out previous episodes, which cover a wide range of subject matter, including AI, digital advertising, branding, age tech, and much, much more. For additional insights and updates, 
please visit our website at canopyandco.com. That's C-A-N-O-P-Y-A-D-C-O.com. Until next time, this is Adam signing off. Canopy's predictive analytics offers next-level audience targeting. By analyzing past behavior, this tool can predict future actions. It uses data to anticipate customer needs, enabling businesses to craft personalized campaigns. Experience the power of predictive analytics at canopyadco.com. On behalf of Canopy IQ, I wanted to take this opportunity to wish all of our listeners a very happy and relaxing holiday season. I have a lot to be grateful for, including the opportunity to host this wonderful podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next year.